people said after having psilocybin was that they felt more connected and more connected to themselves, to others, to the community, to nature. Antidepressants don't work for at least a third and sometimes up to two thirds of people who take them. And most people, will, uh, their doctors will have told them this, that when you're depressed, you uh, you have a depletion of serotonin in your brain and that the, tab the antidepressant tablets uh, enable the receptors to um, take up more serotonin. But there's no evidence for that. You know, depression didn't even wasn't even a diagnosis in the 70s. And now people are, are developing, a, uh, it's becoming a chronic condition. So people have it repeatedly through their life. So something something's happening. And there's something shifting with males as well. It's worth saying because didn't used to get so many males coming forward for psychotherapy. Hello and welcome to the Brian Moylet podcast. I'm your host, Brian Moylet, former Irish age grade international rugby player turned high performance mindset coach. Each week on this podcast, I bring you an interesting person or message to help you discover how to be happier, more fulfilled and more successful. My new book, The Book on How You Become a Pro Rugby Player is available now on Amazon and Audible with links in the show notes. If you love this podcast, please send on some friends. You can subscribe on both Apple Podcasts and Spotify and can also leave five star reviews there. Thanks, Emil, for spending some time with me today. Now let's get into it. I'm with Professor Marie Crow from Otago University, who's done research around psychotherapy and psychosocial interventions for mood disorders and more recently research and testing of psilocybin which is also known as magic mushrooms as an alternative treatment for people with depression. So Marie, thanks Mel, for jumping on. And first up, I suppose, when and why did you start researching psilocybin? I think uh, when I first became interested in it was when Dave Nutt was out here in our department, because I'm in Christchurch. And um, he's a, a friend of one of my colleagues in the department, and he presented on his findings on psilocybin, and that was probably five, six years ago. So um, we've had lots of discussions with him about um, where to go, where we could go in New Zealand with this. And um, so that's the sort of, I, I find it really interesting. I, the thing that really interested me was that people said after having psilocybin was that they felt more connected and more connected to themselves, to others, to the community, to nature, those sorts of things. So I was really interested in the idea of connection, in re particularly in relation to depression. And how have those last five, six years been in kind of exploring that more? Uh, so it's taken us three years to get regulatory approval in New Zealand. Um, and I think that's probably just because we're one of the first groups to um, apply to do this. Um, and so in that time, we've been developing our protocol 
and uh, looking into the best way to deliver it here in New Zealand. So we're going to we be we are delivering it with um, integrated into interpersonal psychotherapy. So the person gets three sessions of psychotherapy, one psilocybin dosing day. This is the following week. Then the following week, they get another psilocybin dosing and then five more sessions of psychotherapy. The first dose of psilocybin is a three-quarter dose and the um, second dose is full dose. And dosage depends on weight. And so what kind of people are, are these? These are people who are suffering from depression. Treatment-resistant depression. So that they've had at least two trials of antidepressants without success. There's a lot of those people, though. That's, that's not a small market or anything. Mm. Yeah. And what have you found so far with the people that have started it? Um, well, we have only just started. So we've started in the last month. And I th just the one thing that um, I would have, we have no outcomes yet because we've still got to keep going. But um, the one thing is that it's not for, I would say, is that psilocybin is not for everybody. People have got to be, it's, uh, I, there's a, I was reading an interesting paper by Robin Harris about that people need to be not, not be avoidant. So people, it doesn't work particularly well for people that are highly avoidant, you know, avoiding un, unpleasant things and painful feelings, those sorts of things. Mm. So I think, I think it's, it's not going to be a one size fits all. It's going to be um, something that will work for some people. Yeah, and have you found people are wanting to try this? Yes. We haven't even advertised it. And so I did a couple of interviews last year, I think it was. And since then, we've had um, uh, over 100 applications for it. Without any, we haven't advertised it yet. So people through word of mouth are oh, hearing yeah. that there's something happening here and they're obviously depressed and the the tablets aren't working for them nothing's working for them and they're yeah the words getting around yeah and i a lot of people say they googled psilocybin in new zealand and my name came up so yeah that's that people who have been reading about psilocybin and its effectiveness in the overseas studies and looking to see if there's something available in new zealand yeah, and has there been stuff like this done in other parts of the world? Yes, it started. Well, well, it started in the nineteen sixties with Dennis Leary, who was um, part of the hippie sort of movement. It was discovered. Uh, psilocybin was isolated. The compound was isolated in the late fifties, and then in the sixties, they were using it for group therapy. I think in California somewhere and then this is just a brief history and then Richard Nixon when he was in power took on the war on drugs and as a result of that it became illegal to use psilocybin and a, a group 
heap of other drugs. And then they put pr pressure on the, I think, United Nations to um, to make other countries make it illegal as well. So it's been, it's only, it's since the 1960s to probably six, I think six, at the most 10 years ago that um, some researchers of us have gone back to it and looking at, is it a possible way forward? Hmm. And have you had any kickback? Oh, yes. Yes. I think, um, uh just resistance like people people not understanding not knowing not not um uh there's i think there's a quite it's probably in every country but i think there's a highly conservative uh group in new zealand the, um the other thing is that i think is interesting is that um it, oh, i think anyway that uh, there's groups that have uh vested interest not in psilocybin, but in maintaining the status quo, such as the pharmaceutical companies are going to be wanting, you know, they've been pumping out the antidepressants. That's not saying that the psilocybin hasn't been taken over by some of the pharmaceutical companies, but it's not generally the big pharma com companies. Yeah, and so... Yeah, the people have vested interest in yeah keeping things the way they are, and keeping people taking antidepressant tablets. Well, it's I, don't, I can't work it out why because that antidepressants don't work for at least a third and sometimes up to two thirds of people who take them. They certainly work for some people, but there's a big group of people that they don't work for. That's one thing. But another group of people who don't want to take them. Because they've, they've researched them and they're not, they don't want to take them, and the uh, the access to psychotherapy in New Zealand is it's really hard, unless you're white middle class that you can afford to get psychotherapy. It's not generally available through the public health system. And would you explain psychotherapy, just for people listening? So, yeah, what what exactly is that? Well, what the one we're using is interpersonal psychotherapy, and what the focus of that is is how your mood affects your relationships, and how your relationships affect your mood. And so we explore that, and so uh, we look we look at that, and then identify with the person about what they want to work on. What is it that they would like to work on? And then for the psilocybin, they have that as the intention of the psilocybin session, sessions. Um, and then with the integration in the psychotherapy focuses on how did the psilocybin help with your therapy goal? So your therapy goal might be to have more self-confidence, to be more comfortable with yourself, to be more trusting, to be, you know, it could, people can come up with what it means for them that they're hoping to get out of it. Yeah. And have you ever taken psilocybin yourself? Yeah, I have. Yeah. Yeah, I have. And um, yeah, I feel that I talked when I was in Vancouver and like my mind was blown. And my 
perspective on life completely changed afterwards. And I believe that taking it had a huge impact on me, certainly me being where I am today. And that's a good place, you know, and um, yeah, just makes you has made me yeah see things from a completely different angle. And yeah, just just I was mind blown. Well, the other well, the other thing that that my experience of it is that it's pretty mellow. Although your mind's getting blown, you know, like you're you're perceiving things differently. It's a pretty mellow drug. Like it's, I don't know how to describe it, but it's more mellow than than that idea. You know, if you think you're hallucinating, then you're going to be hallucinating. You don't get a sense of it being a, a mellow experience. But that was my experience of it. Yeah, and I just found that when you say connected to other people, connected to the earth, and that's um, exactly what I found as well in that and I feel I understand it nowadays well we get a lot of the reasons I find that you get kind of overwhelmed or your head gets fried for want of a better word is you're on technology so much and we're you know we're on our phones all the time we're on zoom calls like this and we obviously haven't evolved to be able to process this and we get we're more and more disconnected from people and the psilocybin when i took it um it kind of eliminated all of that and you just have like an awe and amazement of the like natural world around you uh be it a trees grass everything else and you realize that everything nearly everything doesn't matter or all this stuff that you in your head are like getting wound up about, worked up about, it just gives you this perspective. It's like, oh, wow, none of that shit matters. And it just kind of like you have this realization. And like I, I, I was spoken on here, I got depressed about five years ago because of a, a shoulder injury that one thing led to another. And then I didn't get psychotherapy. I didn't go on antidepressants. I didn't do any of that. Um, I just, to be honest, was reading books and trying to figure it out myself. And I didn't really talk to anyone. And then I happened to, I was living in Vancouver, happened to take magic mushrooms one time. And then, yeah, that's when I got like a whole different perspective on life and what it's about. They, they've done um, MRIs while people are on psilocybin so uh, mapping what's happening in the brain and it's making new connections in the brain so literally at a biological level there's there's new connections being made and what happens with those connections is they provide different ways of thinking about the same things and and it you know when you're depressed you get stuck in a rut thinking the same thing over and over or versions of the same thing but it never really goes anywhere it's just this back and forth back and forth sort of thing and um the psilocybin opens up a whole range of potential other connections which which provide different ways of thinking about it mm. and when you say depression they're like what what exactly is it then? What is depression? Yeah. That is such an interesting question. 
because I've just been looking at the way depression, you know how it's so common these days about depression, but in the 1950s it didn't exist as a diagnosis. So I was really curious to look at what's been going on with that idea. There's always been emotional distress, but we're choosing currently to call that depression. In sort of the early uh, 60s, 50s backwards, those those same feelings were called anxiety. So it's it's just a label, I think, that's being used to describe when people are experiencing quite a bit of a distress. And I think dis- emotional distress is normal in life, but when you get stuck in that, it can start to get the other biological things like the sleep, the, fit- the poor sleep, the fatigue, the lack of appetite, all those things follow on from that. So I think depression is about getting unstuck in those things that are bogging you down at the time. Mm -hmm. And then what do antidepressants claim to do or how do they claim to unstick you? They were based on the serotonin hypothesis, I might have that wrong, but um, the term, but that there was, and most people, uh, their doctors will have told them this, that when you're depressed, you you have a depletion of serotonin in your brain and that the the antidepressant tablets uh, enable the receptors to um, take up more serotonin. But there's no evidence for that. It was, it seems, looking back at its development, it was developed by doctors working for uh, pharmaceutical companies. What I've been reading recently about it is that they got the drug and tried to fit it back. So if people responded to the drug, they were depressed. And so that, which is a really odd way to do science. That's that's really odd, and um, so that um, it they they first used it with hospital populations. So they would these are the early antidepressants. So they would give them to everybody, and those that they responded, they had their, their diagnosis was depression, which is really really bizarre if you think about it. Like, like how were they measuring response? How were they, like, the, the whole thing is just sh- shrouded in this sort of um, vested interests, I would say. Yeah. Not um, so, I don't think everybody was being, uh, not necessarily the doctors would, um, were, I'm not saying all of them weren't, but I'm sure there were some that had uh, a deeply human humanitarian approach to it but there's definitely those that had self-interest in it. Mm. And when you work with people or have done research on people, say the one-third to two-thirds who do respond well to antidepressants, what does that mean? Does that mean that they take them and they're cured of their depression? No, that's an interesting point because I just wrote a paper about looking at how people experience taking antidepressants and what happens to them when they try to come off it. 
and then also uh, looking at those people who they don't respond to antidepressants. So how do they, you know, how are they feeling about that? So, but most people will say that antidepressants, the current antidepressants, SSRIs, SNRIs, um, numb them and that they mask the problem. And that might be okay. And that's what you would call a cure. But it's not going to be a cure forever. It's because, because you know, depression didn't even wasn't even a diagnosis in the 70s. And now people are, are developing, a, uh, it's becoming a chronic condition. So people have it repeatedly through their life. So something diff- something's happening. And what do you think that something could be? I I don't know this, but I wonder whether the new antidepressants have altered the way the brain responds. I don't, there's no evidence for this, but that people who have used antidepressants in the past, when they get emotional distressed, distressed, they um, seek them out again. And whatever it's doing, it's perpetuating, I think. That makes a lot of sense in that someone goes through a rough period, they go to their doctor, they get prescribed antidepressants, it numbs the pain, it doesn't make them happy again, but it it takes them away from the pain. And then not everyone gets off them. But if someone then manages to get off them, and then they go back to their life, the next time they feel that pain, it's and it's the way that science and medicine has gone to an extent i believe that you know you you have a pain you get a a tablet yeah and so when these people then something else happens in their lives and they go through a rough period then it's oh it's back it's get the tablet to fix the problem it mightn't even be conscious it might be that in response to those stresses, the same neural pathways are activated. So it could even be happening at a, a subconscious level that 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 they've then caught in a cycle with it. Yeah. And you know, you say like it wasn't um, it wasn't a diagnosed thing back fifty years ago. The way I like I understand anxiety, like I've had two panic attacks in my life back then, uh, five years ago. So like I understand what anxiety is. And when I think about depression, it's just like not wanting to be there, like just seeing no, just like no interest in anything in the in tomorrow, in the day, in anything. And I was doing a mental skills session with a team this week and it was more kind of connection and culture building and just creating a space for the players to be vulnerable and speaking about their highs and speaking about their lows and because there's just many benefits to that it brings people closer so it brings the team closer but it also obviously there's a there's a kind of mental health aspect to it in that it helps young men open up whereas you know throughout their day they wouldn't be speaking about these things but anyway one of them said that they were bullied quite badly in school and they just didn't want to be 
they kind of then went on they were just like and I didn't even want to be here I did they essentially you know didn't want to be alive and then another person kind of said the same thing and then I suppose that's what I would kind of term or understand depression to be yeah I think it's that it's extreme emotional uh, emotional distress and sometimes trauma because usually I always when I'm working with somebody doing psychotherapy with somebody one of the things we always do is we look at the predisposing factors we look at the precipitating factors and we look at the perpetuating factors so the predisposing factors are the vulnerabilities or the hurts that people carry around from their childhood and so they probably have developed coping mechanisms that work really well for that age. But as they get older, those don't, those don't necessarily work as well or they're not as productive as they had been. And so that, that is when that uh, emotional distress becomes overwhelming. And with males, this is just anecdotal, but mostly I would say that of the males that I see with depression, and there's something shifting with males as well, it's worth saying, because didn't you used to get so many males coming forward for psychotherapy, and now we're getting a lot more coming forward, and a lot more of them in that sort of younger age group. Um, I lost my train of thought, though, by that sidetrack. Oh, that the, the predisposing factors are often to do with violence, abuse in the house, growing up, alcohol, that sort of stuff, or what's happened to them at school with bullying and things like that. They're the, they're the ones, most common things that I see. And so then they come to you, you're saying young males, and so they come to you and they say have depression and something has an event then recently has set that off? Yeah, exactly. That that vulnerability is there. It's like a soft spot. And so it's always going to, you know, well, unless it's dealt with in a in an adult sort of way, children don't usually, aren't usually able to process it. They usually blame themselves for that stuff. Um, and so that soft spot gets triggered. And then something else will be perpetuating it. So it's identifying what people do that are perpetuating in it. And it could be just things like uh, uh, those thoughts, those ruminative thoughts, and those or that belief that I'm not good enough or that um, people, you know, whatever that negative belief is that they have about themselves. It keeps perpetuating. The, that's, they've got stuck in it. So normally people can um, manage their own emotional situations, but sometimes those sorts of things get them stuck. They get bogged. Yeah, and with the, you mentioned there, I'm not good enough, or how do you work through, say, someone that has low self-worth? How do people get their self-worth back? It's really, uh, uh, that's really, 
that's the sort of part of it that the crux of it so what I would normally do with, with working with someone like that is say is what would they like to be able to do so that you've got something tangible to head for it's not of course that one thing isn't the answer to everything but what would they like to do and then doing the what do we need to do before you get there so practicing getting what the really common thing that people have to do is build up the belief in themselves and trusting themselves that confidence in themselves that's that's and so it's identifying ways that they can do that and so that would that then be like a small exposure so well, no what I was I thinking I'll, I'll think to tell you about one um guy that had um depression and it was as a result of bullying at school from uh school teachers and other kids at school and we looked at the way why that still had power over his life now so why would you give some losers like that the power to control your life now so looking at it from a different perspective and what did you did he did that person kind of realize or kind of see a different perspective yeah. and understanding yeah. that yeah that's that I that was because I would have been there would have been previous work where I would have just realized that he's giving others more credence than he gives himself so how does he have how can he get back into himself there's lots of things to do in, in that building up yeah and on that which interesting it which is different but the same is i believe and i well, i know from first hand experience that the vast majority of people don't do what they want to do because they're afraid of what others will think of them yeah. and those others that we talk about we don't even like so <laughs> You know, so if you're whatever it is, and this is I'm writing a new book now, and it's kind of I've just think about this quite a lot. And people don't go after their dreams, don't go try to express who they fully are, don't try to be who they are because they're afraid what other people will think. And once again, they don't if you identify those others, they don't even like them. So you're letting people who you don't even like, who you 100 percent do not like, control your life. Have you come across, I've just come across this recently and I've been really intrigued and I like it as, an, as a, a sort of a model and it's called Ikigai. It's a Japanese um, philosophy, I-K-I-G-A-I. And what I like, I'll just, I'll just I'll tell you a bit about it. What I like about it is it refers to the person's personal purpose and fulfillment in life but that doesn't help it doesn't happen in isolation from others or society at large so they have a few principles the intersection of what you love and what you're good at is your passion the intersection of what you love and what the world needs is your mission and the intersection of what the world needs and what you can get paid for is your vacation it's an interest. I find it a really what I like about that is that you don't move. It's not individualistic. 
Yeah, I love that. I couldn't uh, jot those notes down quick enough as you're talking, but um, that's brilliant. <laughs> I can I'll send li- that. Yeah, I'll send that through to you if you're interested. I was, I've been really taken by it. I think it's such a useful, you know, when you're thinking about what am I going to do? What You know, that often happens with depression. People get stuck. They don't want to keep doing that. So how do you decide what you're going to do? And I just think that's a nice little way of thinking about what you could do big time and I'm thankfully not there yet but midlife and I remember do like doing jobs or doing things that I wasn't passionate about simple as but society leads you to believe that that's what you ha- that's the way it is like you know you you're sitting there you're kind of quite so I don't have much interest in this I don't I'm not this doesn't set you know set the soul on fire it doesn't get me going but it's you kind of think that that's what you have to do and then I think that you do that long enough you wake up not wanting to do what you're doing for long enough you'll you'll hit the wall and you'll get depressed and then that's I believe that leads into why people have midlife crisis and then oh yeah I and I've We've got a similar sort of interest in this. Is, um, I also think, like, I always think of midlife crisis as people that are still using coping mechanisms they used in their adolescence as they move through life and they haven't adapted. They haven't thought about, their, you know, their relationship with other people and all that sort of thing. Big time. And coping mechanisms, what you're saying there, are are from my understanding and if I think of myself um like working out playing sport like I know that and you know when I was going through and and it's good like it's important to have coping mechanisms as well like when I went like say my younger sister died like I just love playing sport and it's like you kind of you're you're a kid and you're kind of you're hurt and you're upset and all that but like you just know that when you go play sport you're going to be happy again and so like I would just play every single sport I could. And it's not to say that you shouldn't have coping mechanisms. Like it's not to say like, don't play sport at all and just sit with this hurt and understand it, you know? And so, um, but it's, I think then what we're saying that when you become an adult and you keep using coping, coping mechanisms all the time to block out your feelings or to get away from your feelings, yeah. then it gets to a point where something um yeah something breaks through and then all of a sudden you haven't ever been introspective and haven't ever dealt with anything i always have this image of a pressure cooker where Mm. where you keep pushing it down you keep pushing it down you keep pushing it down it's going to explode and the more you push it down the higher it's going to explode and what's the from your in your opinion, what's the, the kind of solution to that? Uh, is what I think happens with that, you know, um, guys are, are regarded as doing that quite a lot, sucking it up, just suck it up, um, is that they either need to be really aware that that's what they're doing, that they're leaving it for in this particular situation. Because like you said about the sport, it's completely fine. You just have to be aware that's why you're doing it sort of thing and, and that you're going to deal with it. But 
whatever you do is really, I think, really fine. And I think particularly with males, and I don't want to be to make this generalisation, but there, it's the use of alcohol and drugs to manage depression can get is really it, it causes so much. I don't, I don't mean harm on a sort of, um, but harm to themselves, harm to their relationship, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and that's um, that's exactly what I did. I like I said, I had this shoulder injury. It just got so bad, and I couldn't play sport I couldn't even work out I couldn't go for a run because like the running would or jogging or walking briskly would hurt my would be just so painful and um yeah hit rock bottom and then I'd always drank to be honest from Ireland it's the culture unfortunately that once you hit 17 or 18 or even younger you're just you drink quite a bit and so I'd always drank but I'd never touched a drug because I was so you know invested in my rugby and that's what I loved and wanted to do and etc but then I remember just being so despondent and thinking this is what other people do and then was offered it and then started taking drugs just to feel happy again and then just drinking all the time and then yeah just it's just such an awful um it's like it's such an awful loop in that you know you do it to get away from what you're feeling but then obviously you wake up worse yeah yeah and it's one of the things with it is I think it's really important not to judge people who do that, you know, because there's a lot of judgment about, well, I'm thinking particularly, you know, in this sort of clinical setting and that, that judgy sort of thing. But people do the best they can and they, they do what's available to them. They're surviving. It may not be working and it may need to, you know, their cycle need, might need to be break, broken, but it was the best they could do at the time. Yeah, the best. Yeah, the best they could do with where they're at and what they had. Yeah, and those people, like you say, those people need to be supported, and they don't need to be judged. No, no. One of the things with when they do research on, oh, it actually happens in clinical practice as well, is that um, so you're getting treatment for depression, and you happen to use alcohol or drugs the most likely response you'll get is get yourself off alcohol and drugs and we'll treat your depression. If they could get themselves off the alcohol and drugs, they would be they would get themselves off there. The two is so intertwined. You can't just pull it and say, get it, stop taking your drugs. Yeah. And what do you find or have you found is most helpful or beneficial to help people get off alcohol and drugs? And for me, what I did was I remember one day, like I was obviously using it to escape what I had been, what I was going through, but then like pretty, you know, after a while, not so long, I was just like looking in the mirror one day, I was like, this isn't me. Like I, what if, what's happened here? I just, and I need to sort myself out. And even though I was at rock bottom and it's challenging, but, and I just like, yeah, nearly kind of just stopped. But what have you found? Well, I think it's always, I'm not, I, this isn't my area of expertise. I work with people with mood disorder, but I can't help but therefore be working with people that um, um, have alcohol and drug issues. I think one of the first things is to recognise why you're drinking. And I never, ever buy the story that it's because it tastes good. Yeah, no, because <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't. It's no, 
<laughs> and to be honest, now that I don't really drink, I'll have a, a pint or two every now and again. But um, uh, yeah, a non-alcoholic beer tastes the same. Yeah. There's an interesting book out at the... I just was reading about it in The Guardian last night. Um, I think it's edited by Dave Nutt, and it's about alcohol and the... You know how alcohol's okay. It's it's a it's okay in our society to use alcohol, and it's like this two level thing. But actually, um, you know, it's got more. It's way more harmful than psilocybin, for example. Um, and um, there was an excerpt from him saying, "Nobody likes that first drink. They're lying if they say they like that first mm. drink." They like the second one. They like the third one. But they only like the first one because they know it's going to take them to their second one. Yeah, you know, it's so funny. I used to be narrow-minded in that I grew up, obviously, I suppose you're conditioned by your environment in that I grew up in Ireland and alcohol is legal and everything else was illegal. And I, as a teenager, I thought, because once again, what I was told that if you smoked weed, that you'd end up on the streets and that weed was like um, heroin and everything else besides alcohol was a drug and alcohol is fine. Like go to the pub on Friday, Saturday, drink, drink, every drink to your heart's content. That's fine. That's all good. And that everything else is so bad. And it's just mind blowing how wrong it is and it's so funny then like i you know when i was 24 i think to deal with the shoulder pain actually weed was the first thing i did i was i was given um tablets and then one of my friends who smoked weed was like brian like you know those tablets i know of other guys in the states friends of mine who got addicted to oxycontins after knee injuries and mm-hmm. after different injuries because in the states they just dish them out to them they'd be getting 60 90 in a in a in a tub or a little thing and they just be popping them and then the lad said weed or whatever and so I remember just with the shoulder just so bad and then I tried it and I was like oh and then I kind of just kind of came around and realized like wow geez I had thought you know alcohol comparatively is so bad you know you walk down any main street in a city at 2 a.m and there's going to be people fighting yeah and there's not going to be a weekend when the EDs aren't full of people that have. Although I think there's, I'm not a big fan. I think methamphetamine's a nasty, nasty drug, and so do I think synthetic cannabis is. Um, but you know, there's a lot of other drugs. It's drugs is such an all-encompassing term for such a variety of things. Yeah, hundred percent, and. Going back to um, when you say that you see a lot more young males coming forward now. So how long have you been a psychotherapist? Since about 25 years. And so 25, 22, 20 years ago, what would your clientele have been mostly like when they weren't young males? Females. Um, quite common this is just broad generalization but I think it was something like most psychotherapy studies had 77% females and then the 23% males and I think 
on our last study, it was about 50-50. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you mentioned there, like young males coming forward, I think that society as a whole, people are like in the past, obviously men, and this probably goes into childhood as well, in that boys are told to be strong, suck it up and keep going. Whereas girls, like if you cry, it's like express your feelings. And then men, when, you know, they the boys become men, then if ever anything is going wrong, you try and be harder, be stronger, push on with more intent. And I think that a society, like men as a whole, have just realized like, oh, that's too, I just can't keep doing that, you know? That's yeah, not I, the answer. Yeah, I think... Yeah, I definitely think that. It's funny because just before I was looking at um, those sorts of terms that we use in our culture to describe that. So the little Aussie battler just gets on, doesn't mind, does things. I know that Aussie's not our culture. Being staunch in our culture is really important. The stiff upper lip in English culture. Um, you know, all those things about being just, get, you know, get on with it, do it, don't complain. And it's, it's such a cultural thing, in Western culture anyway, that it doesn't get questioned. We just yeah. take it for granted. Yeah. And then do, where do you think it comes into then, or is there a line in which you say there, don't complain, but then people who complain about everything and feel everything's too hard or you know who maybe don't have resilience maybe maybe um but i'd be interested why they didn't like what's what's going on that this is you know you know i, I presume you, they're not very common I mean, but the, i don't certainly don't see them but those people that no matter what you do it's not good enough is that what you mean that no so i suppose people um just people who have zero resilience who think everything is too stressful and too hard and just don't want to try and push through any discomfort i would yeah i i think though that resilience isn't necessarily a like we assume it's a positive attribute and that it's controllable but people with poor resilience have usually had lots of episodes where the resilience has been tested. So what, how they got up and got going and they've hit another wall and then they hit another wall sort of thing. I th certainly think you can build resilience, but I think some people become, it's comp it becomes complex when you have these multiple things that have happened in their life coming at it but there's and certainly there's this is a, like a coping mechanism that people like we were talking about just before but I would classify that as avoidance you know those people that that uh, can't do it won't do it that sort of thing and people so those people have learned to use avoidance as a coping mechanism at some other stage in their life hmm yeah, that that makes so much sense. Yeah, the people who won't 
try anything just avoid everything that's how they yeah coping mechanism yeah makes perfect sense yeah that's how they got that's how they were able to get up and go sort of thing in the past but it's not working now what with the say the young males that you see coming in to um to you now what would be some of the most are there any like really common threads that you see You know, there's quite a there's quite a push at the moment because of the high suicide rate amongst tradies. So I see quite a few people, tradies, who I think may have been encouraged through their workplace to seek help. Um, and that'll be that. This is what I the most common thing: taking on so much, young families, wives, mortgages. It's and it's like. Ooh, this, you know, how are you going to keep doing this? That would be the most, you know, that that just taking, they've taken on way too much. I know people will say that's what we do in our society, though, but we don't really have to do it before the age of 25. Like, it's not a have to do it sort of thing. Yeah, big time. Big time. Yeah, when you mentioned there, 100%, like, those things that have none of those and any of them in isolation would would uh be challenging like having a kid or having two kids or having you know a, a mortgage or all that stuff yeah and run and, and tradies who are their own employers so they have this pressure on them to keep that's the way their income comes in and that so, responsibility for other for the family that they get into yeah, so I suppose then it's um, for people to maybe not try to keep up with society and what you feel you need to be or do and to take things maybe a bit slowly. Yeah, and I would say in that situation, the ikigai, principles like having a look at what are you doing for other people i tell you something that i've always done when i've worked with young adolescents with depression is that i've always got them to do something for somebody else every day now that person doesn't need to know about it they they don't need to know you're the person who did it and it, it's the act of thinking of someone else rather than that huge internalization that goes with depression it that's, just slightly out for the out of themselves. That is so good. Yeah. It takes you out of yourself. And it's something I've said on here before as well, that what I found or realized years ago was that coaching was very selfish, but very selfless in that you're giving up your time to help like these other people and try and make them better. But anyone who loves coaching, the reason, well, for the most part, the reason they love it is because they're helping people and they get they get that feeling from it of helping people and it's so true and it's something yeah just in the last few years I've learned as well myself like the actual concept of it like rationally understood it like just and it is to help people and expect nothing in return because if you're expecting something in return you're not it's different you're trying to trade it's you need to literally buy someone a coffee and just literally not expect it or just you know help someone out in in a way and just expect nothing and and then it goes into like say spirituality of the law of karma and every what is it um 
cause and effect like every cause has an effect and the more good you put out or what you put out is what you get back and there's kind of there's lots of different things there and i've i've uh, ever since i heard about this i don't know where i even heard it but that some people don't even get to talk to other people during the day and that um they might take their dog out for a walk and nobody talks to them and so it costs nothing to say hello to people. Costs you nothing. Doesn't slow you down, doesn't do anything. But you may be the only person they've spoken to that day. That's so interesting you say that. I was living in Vancouver for four and a half years before I moved to Christchurch three months ago. And in Vancouver, people don't say hello to each other when they're passing on the street. And I think it's the size of the city, definitely. I would imagine because I'm from a small town and everyone would say hello as they pass on the street, but something to do with the density of the city. But then I moved to Christchurch and like I'm obviously or had been conditioned that way. Like when you're out for a walk, you kind of put your head down or when you cause someone comes near you, you kind of look away. And then everyone kept saying hello to me. And I was like, <laughs> oh, this is people are so nice here. And, you know, like then I, I'd start giving it back, like saying hello back. And you just it genuinely it's like it's not nothing like you actually feel good of you know it, it yeah. feels nice when you look someone yeah. in the eyes and, and smile and say hello i i was uh, uh recently in australia and i'd gone for a walk with my friend who's australian and as people we were on a like a walking track or a running track or something and as people were walking towards us i was saying hello <laughs> she said do you know them and I said, no. And she said, well, stop saying hello to them. <laughs> it was just a foreign culture for that sort of thing to happen. Yeah, 100%. 100%. I know exactly, because <laughs> it's the exact same as I said in Vancouver. And another one, like, feeding into that, which is just mad, is um, smiling at, like, just, like, being nice to people and smiling at people and it's sometimes it can be challenging don't go wrong it's not like everyone has bad days but like i was reading this book or listening to an audible called psycho cybernetics and um i think it was a psychotherapist that that wrote it but he was saying like practice smiling three times a day and i literally made a conscious practice or intention to practice smiling three times a day and like <laughs> now i find myself smiling all the time and like it's <laughs> life's way better well i tell you another thing that makes life way better is sometimes when i get in my car to go home from work i decide okay i'm going to be the perfect driver i'm letting everybody in i'm being the courteous driver i'm in no you know it's not going to make much difference how fast i get home it's just Christchurch, and you feel so much better than thinking all those things about people and then it's Although it helps other people, it helps you as well. 100%. And when you say that thing about other people, um, a book I'm reading now, Seed of the Soul, um, they say in it not to judge, not to judge any person or anything or any event. Just don't judge anything. And that's class as well. That's really good. Like, you know, say when, like you mentioned there, a driver, like, you know, coming across it, you just just don't judge it or if someone is nasty to you whatever along your way just don't judge it that you know we don't know what's happened to them and it's far more beneficial to you to go about your day just letting it be letting everything be around you and just observing versus 
casting judgment on things. Yeah, and I think for anybody that's feeling low, now I don't mean doing this in a selfless way where you don't look after yourself. I just mean doing things for other people as a way in in a selfless way. It just is a habit. It's not big things. It's just you can you just need to start with small things. It'll make the person doing the good acts better. And I know that sounds really like, you know, I I went to Catholic schools, went to convents and things like that. And that sounds like what the nuns used to say. And I don't mean it in that way. Well, maybe I do. Maybe they were onto something. Yeah, no, I'm. Uh, I went to a Catholic school as well, and um, I know what you mean. And and it's not, yeah, maybe it's not from that way, but maybe it is from that way. But um, but it is. Oh, it's so true. Like you say, and getting out of yourself is. Um, you mentioned that earlier. That's that's what it is. And and when you're, when things aren't going well, or your mind, you're kind of catastrophized, spiral, and you're just. It's all about you. But exactly that interacting with other people and and that little act of helping someone in some little way takes you out of that the kind of spiraling thoughts and the other thing about those spiraling thoughts is they never conclude because you start on one worry and another worry comes in from the side and so you go oh yes I should worry about that as well and so you never conclude that one and then something else comes it just does this thing where you never conclude the thought and so one of the things that I think people find helpful is just force yourself to stay on the worry the first worry and problem solve it like stay on it don't get sidetracked by the other ones actually stop yourself sliding off it and stay focused on it yeah something that kind of could tie into that or will be journaling maybe like when people have these worries in their mind and they they write them down so it's it's forcing you to to slow down and to to put the worry down there and kind of elaborate on it and write it out and then journal. I don't do as much as I probably should, but I do it a bit, but it's, um, Jesus, it's very good. Well, I think one of the things that that does is that it externalizes something. You're not having to, it's like, you know, when you wake up in the middle of the night and you have a brainwave about something and if you don't write it down, you're going to keep waking up trying to remember your, your brainwave. It's like get getting it out, get it out. And you're not carrying it around with you all the time. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, I keep a notepad beside the bed. It's really frustrating that you know when you have a good idea then and you can't remember. You're like, oh no. I know. Um, the other night I had two brilliant ideas, and I can only remember one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not that brilliant. <laughs> the lesser of the two brilliant ones you remembered. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but hey, thanks a mil for your time, Marie. Really, really appreciate it. Been brilliant chatting. Cheers for listening in today. I hope today's podcast helped you on your journey. Be sure to check out the show notes in the description for a rundown of today's episodes and all the important links. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to be an absolute legend, please share it with a friend on social media or by text. And let me know what you enjoyed about the episode over on our social media channels at Brian Moylet. I really love hearing your feedback and it helps us make the pod better. Also, please subscribe to the podcast on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts. 
And on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts, you can leave up to a five-star review. If you're in sports or business and you want to get better results, you feel like you're capable of more, you want to be happier, more fulfilled, more successful in what you are doing, head over to my website now, offfieldrugby.com, and we'll set up a time to have a chat for free. You can get my new book now on Amazon and Audible, and the links are in the show notes. Thanks, Emil, for clicking in today. Have a brilliant rest of your day. Cheers.